Corinthians chapter 10 for the class tonight. And there's one word that we want to work on, and that is the word temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And here's what I will do. I'm going to read verse 12 and 13, which will be our key passages, and then I'm going to go back up to verse number 5, and then start teaching from there. The 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 and 13. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I'll tell you what, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into this. Father, we love you, and we're so grateful this evening to be able to fellowship with one another. Now as we break the bread of life, we need you to give us clarity. Help me, the Lord, to, to explain this so that it's easy to understand. We're so grateful that your son came and died on the cross for us, Lord. In the middle of all of this, give us wisdom, give us strength in the midst of temptations when they come to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the core, uh, the, the core, uh, how do I want to say that? Core principles or core beliefs that we have from Scripture is that we have to learn from other people's successes and failures. That's part of discipleship. In order to do that, you have to have some pretty good powers of observation. Means you have to pay attention to what's going on around you. You've got to keep your eyes on people to know what it is that they are doing. And all of us, of course, we come in contact with folks that may or may not do things that we like or dislike. Nevertheless, as people very often times say, you, you know, you chew the hay and then get rid of all the sticks and everything like that. What we have when we look into 1 Corinthians is Paul's teaching to the people that were having some difficulties, really identifying who they were. They, they, were, they were always trying to associate themselves with certain people. People said, I'm a Paul, I'm a Cephas, and these cliques they had was detrimental to their Christian faith. And Paul was all the time trying to outline how they were supposed to live. Now, when we come here, one of the things we observe is that Paul says in the first few verses of chapter 10 that we should have our eyes open to the children of Israel to learn from them. Now notice verse number 5, talking about Israel. It says, with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. But then the question you begin to wonder is, what did they do to displease God? And when we ask that question, then it, it helps us to understand what it is that we can do now that can displease God. So verse 6, these things were our examples. Examples. Everybody say that word with me. Examples. So we all need models. We all need people to show us the right way to do something and the wrong way to do something. Same way you needed somebody to show you how to use a tape measure when you were a kid. You needed somebody to, to, to show you how to... You know, make sure that, that something was plumb, that you had the bubble right in the middle. You, you needed somebody to explain to you how to change the oil on a car. You need somebody to show you how to make 
a kind of food, how to crochet, how to stitch, how to sew. All of these different things require some kind of an example. And even with stitching and sewing crochet, and very often you need a model, a pattern that you're going to go by. The children of Israel was called the church in the wilderness, as we know from Acts chapter 7. So verse 6 says, the things that occurred to them happened to us as examples. That is to say, if we pay attention to some of the things they did, then it's possible we don't have to make the same mistakes. Now, you know as well as I do, we, we, we say that, but when it comes to learning certain principles, we, we tend to do just like little kids. Kids start learning how to walk, and then, of course, you can't walk for them. They have to stumble and fall on, on their own. But then pretty soon they learn how to get themselves back up. Their muscles are getting stronger. Then pretty soon they're just running all, all over the house. Well, as a Christian, we certainly have to learn to walk before we run because we are babes before we are mature Christians. It's a learning process. And if we're going to feed on the sincere milk of the word that we might grow thereby, then part of the growth has to do with observation. So the children of Israel become the object lesson in verse 6. And then it says that we shouldn't lust after evil things. So that tells us that we can desire things that God considers to be bad or wicked or evil. Now he gives some examples. He said, don't be idolaters as were some of them. Talking about the children of Israel. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is to say, these folks were never sober-minded or serious. They were engaged in frivolity all the time. You ever met somebody that all they want to do is play around when there's work to be done? When there are things that need to be done, all they want to do is tease and be the, the comedian to keep everybody laughing. But at some point, you have to get something done. And the children of Israel's problem was they didn't take serious the things that God told them to do because they were under the impression, okay, here's what the law of God says, but God cannot be so serious about the penalties and the judgments. I mean, after all, we have a covenant with him. He loved Abraham. He loved Isaac. He loved Jacob. The love and affection he had for them has been transferred to us. So God's not the kind of God that's going to judge us because of our disobedience or idolatry. Well, what is an idol? Idol is any kind of a figurine, a statue, or any kind of belief that you essentially treat as a god. So why would you want to worship anything that you could carry around in your pocket or that you could move from one part of the room to the other side of the room? Why would you want to worship any kind of statue that a factory or a man would have to build or a lady would have to build and then put it in a place for everybody to come and then bow down to it. This is what God is saying to the Old Testament prophets when he says, you have a God that has eyes that cannot see, ears that are unable to hear, and a mouth that they cannot speak with. So an idol can be something that is physical, that takes up your time, your energy, and your monies resources, but it also can be an opinion or a belief. Now, the scripture says the truth will set you free. And if, if you have a belief or perspective 
that is contrary to God's word, and then your belief is not contra uh, contrasted or confronted by God's truth, and then you choose to believe your viewpoint, despite the fact that the scripture is very clear about something, then you have essentially said to God, I believe this more than I believe that, or vice versa, and I'm going to submit my heart to that and be obedient to that. And there are a whole lot of people whose views and values are idolatrous because they stand contrary to what the word of God says. And repentance is a change of mind. Change of mind. Well, here we are. Here's, here's another one there. Verse number eight, he says also, let's not commit fornication as some of them did and 23,000 of them died in a day. Now, that's a lot of people. Now, what's this story connected to? There was a prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam was a man of God who walked with God. The children of Israel were multiplying so much that some of the surrounding tribes in the region who did not like the Israelites they said we've got to figure out a way to get these people in, pro in trouble with their God because we're tired of seeing them uh, so blessed and so they said let's go to their prophet but you can't go to the prophet without a gift let's take a gift to their prophet and let's see if we can get him to pronounce a curse on them or teach us and tell us how to get these folks in trouble so they, they went and they carried a little bit of wealth with them and uh, Balaam, he looked at that and he said, no, I'm not interested in that at all. Now, here's the temptation. See? Here's the wealth. Then here is the children of Israel. They want him to do something for the money. And what they want him to do is basically get Israel in trouble, lead them into sin. But in the midst of the temptation, he said, absolutely not take your money and go. Well, they turned around and came back again. This time they brought more money, more money. And they brought all of this money and put it in front of them. They said, look, we've come one more time and we want you to say to us how we can get Israel in trouble. And so he said, I cannot curse whom God has blessed. And he said, take that and go. So they came back again. And this time they came back with even more and more and more money. And when they brought that money and put it in front of Balaam, at this time now his, 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 his the palms of his hands are sweating. Because he's, he's looking at the camels that are loaded down with gold and silver. And I mean, they're, they're, they're trailing that, all of those camels and stuff like that is a, is a beautiful, absolutely gorgeous Mercedes Benz. They're pulling behind that thing out there in the desert. I mean, he's going to ride in style. Never been a camel with that kind of horsepower. So he, he's, he's excited about that and so the scripture tells us they brought all that excess to him and he then he he came up with this idea in his own mind I, I can accept that and now i'm going to tell them how to trick israel into sin and that's exactly what he did he told the, the those leaders he said look these israelite men they they like women and they like women that they're not supposed to be involved with so he said, go and get some of these Canaanite girls and some of these Hittite girls and put them in some of the prettiest little miniskirts you can find and paint them all up, get them all pretty so they have the nose rings and earrings and all of that. And said, you just come and you just have them with their little scarves over their face. And said, when they get out there and start doing a little belly dance out there in front of them, and then they pull back that, that, that little facial part, said, those Israelite men will be hooked. 
and they'll take every one of them. If you know the story, that's exactly what happened. The children of Israel, the men went out there, chased after what the scripture calls strange flesh, and they ended up judged by God. So we have two issues here. Balaam succumbed to the temptation. He said no the first couple of times, but then he said yes. And that teaches us that when temptation comes to you, it doesn't just come once, it comes over and over again, but you've got to be willing to say no consistently. But with the children of Israel, when the ladies came to them, because of this man yielding to sin, it introduced temptation to them, and they fell into sin. So sometimes when we yield to temptation, it makes it possible for somebody else to then be tempted. But if you say no, it closes the door on somebody else from being tempted. Think about that. There may be doors that have been opened in your friends' lives or in your family's lives that never would have been opened had you not opened the door. So we, we can all see that as a, as a personal thing. So when we come to verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Let us not tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. This is referring to the time in Numbers when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They were hungry. They were tired of eating manna. And they were just tired of having to believe God for their daily bread. They wanted a different kind of diet. And so they started thinking back to Egypt. And they were saying that there was a time when we had leeks and, and garlic and all this other food that grew out of the ground. And that was starting to, to, to sound good to them again. Now, you know from the story that when that's all they had to eat, they weren't even happy with that. They weren't pleased with that. So God delivers them and gives them manna. He brings in some quail. And they got angry at Moses, and they said, you brought us out here to kill us, and we don't like it. We ought to kill you. So the scripture says that the Lord, he brought in snakes, and these snakes came in and started biting the children of Israel. And a lot of them were dying. So you just laying those fangs into those legs and stuff. And then one by one, it was falling to the ground. And, and Moses was just in a panic. He's talking to God, pleading with God, spare these people, spare these people. And God said, Moses, here's what you do. I want you to make a serpent of brass. Now, now so, somebody's got to take time to do this. Okay, this, this wasn't done in five minutes. Somebody's got to make a serpent of brass and then attach it to a pole and then as this is being made, people are dying. Okay? People are dying. So you know there are folks that are screaming and yelling, saying, can't you move any quicker? And finally Moses gets it, and they run out there in the midst of the people. And, and then the teaching is, if you look to the serpent where you're dying, you'll suddenly find that life will come back to you. So the thing that was killing them had to become an image so that that image could then restore life to them. And this is the story Jesus uses in John chapter 3. We always quote John 3.16, but we forget that the preceding verses say, as the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So he who knew no sin became sin. And think of how many people died in their sins as God was waiting for the fullness of times in order to send forth his Son. To bring redemption. There were people that were thinking, okay, God, you can move a little bit faster. We need a Messiah. We need somebody to break the yoke of this, this foreign power. But God was working at this. 
And the children of Israel, according to verse 9, they had no idea that when they were murmuring and complaining to Moses, they were tempting Christ. That was the type. That's, that's the figure that Paul is trying to emphasize. So verse 10, he says, don't murmur as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, here's an interesting question. Has anybody in here ever murmured or complained before? Probably not. Not today, for sure. Not today. Yeah. We, we've all murmured. We've all complained. But, but have you ever considered the fact that from the mouth comes life and death? That's Proverbs. And the scripture tells us that our speech should be used to edify. Our conversation should be seasoned with grace. What is grace? That's something that empowers people. James tells us that we should not have coming forth from our fountain, which is our tongue, sweet water and bitter water. That's what he says. So if you go, you go to a fountain at school or, or in some public place at a, uh, it may be a pool or something like that, and you hit the button and get the water to come up, you don't get sweet water and bad water. You get one or the other. You get rusty water. You get clean water, pure water. But you don't, you don't get both. And so the, the, the teaching then is, from, from, for us, in the sense of our speech, we don't want to be the kind of people that spend our times murmuring and complaining because you will reap what you sow and your own speech can destroy you. Because the Bible says that a man is ensnared by the words of his mouth. By every idle word, one day we will be judged. So we have to be considerate about what we're saying. When you are tempted to murmur, tempted to complain in a very, very negative way. I don't want you to walk out of here with the idea that that I'm not saying there's no such thing as constructive criticism. Sometimes you can't get to the root of of a problem unless you first identify the problem. And you, sometimes you can't change bad behavior until you identify bad behavior so that you can then try to point out what good behavior is. But the difference between murmuring and complaining and constructive criticism is constructive criticism has as its end something profitable for the one that you're talking to. But murmuring and complaining is basically demeaning someone. You're debasing someone. And you certainly don't want them to feel good after the conversation at all. Well, if you can see verse 11, it says all of these things happen to them for examples or types that are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. All of the tests and temptations that came to Israel happened to them so that later on in these centuries in which we live, we could look back and learn from them. Same way we learn from our parents and, and grandparents. You, you can't pass along traditions if you don't tell people about them. You, know? you, you have to tell people about your grandparents, your great-grandparents, whether it's a, a vase, uh, a coat, whether it's a blanket. If you tell the story of that, you're passing on the tradition. And if you pass along a story that has some kind of moral value to it, then they can learn from that story, okay, they did that and this happened, so if I do that, chances are likely to happen to me also. This is how we learn. And, and Paul says, for our admonition, that is to warn us. And if someone takes the time to warn you of the possibilities of what can happen, we should, we should pay attention. 
So take something like American history. You know, people say history repeats itself. You go back and you look at the, the foundation of this country, and you know as well as I do, God was right there at the foundation. He's a cornerstone. So as long as he was the cornerstone, then quite naturally things that had to do with sin and wickedness that was bad, these things started kind of falling by the wayside because the more you grow in grace and in knowledge and grow closer and closer to God, the more you want to change your life and conform yourself to the image of the Lord. So there's a constant change, and that change typically is for the better. And that's why many of the founding fathers said, if you get rid of Jesus Christ, then the republic can't stand because the republic was designed to function along with Christianity. So now we have a citizenry here that is not interested in God. So what's happening? It's falling apart. We, we have forsaken the views of our founding fathers and our pilgrim mothers and people like that. And because of that, we have ignored their warnings and their admonitions. And so we, we're asking questions now uh, about what bathrooms we ought to use. Because we, we don't know. We, we've somehow we've, we, we've, we've lost sight of some of the basic things. And in that, that prideful, arrogant spirit that we have now, Paul says in verse 12, where for him that stand, that thinks that he stand, take heed lest he fall. Because the moment you begin to believe, okay, I'm strong enough on my own in the midst of this temptation. I'm at an intersection right now. I can choose to go left or right, or I can go forward, or I can stand still. But I, whatever decision I make is going to be the right one. When you start thinking like that, 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 that can be pride. And when someone else falls into sin and does something wrong, be careful about saying this. I would never do that. Oh, my. <laughs> you got to be careful because while you're saying that, the devil is digging a pit right in front of you. And in Galatians, the Bible says that if a brother or sister falls into sin, then we which are, are spiritual, we should restore somebody with a spirit of meekness considering ourselves lest we also be tempted that is to say when somebody does something wrong and they do yield to sin and now it's judgment time the question you have to ask if you're in the position of uh, deciding their fate and being involved with the judgment the question you have to ask is how how would i want to be treated now see so here, here's here's somebody that got called in a bad relationship with somebody they shouldn't have been in and, and, and now it's all out and it's a matter of embarrassment and all of that kind of a thing and, and people are, are, are just, just really laying it on but you know, you, at some point you've got to ask the question okay if that was me how would I want to be treated you know, that's what Paul is saying we, we tend to enjoy forgiveness when we are the ones that need it when we need it, we believe in, we believe in forgiveness that, that is lavished, lavishly given. But when we have to give it to somebody else, then suddenly we become a little bit stingy and selfish, especially if it's somebody we never liked anyhow. Because in the back of our minds and under our breath, we're saying, well, he deserved what he got anyhow. I didn't like him. See, that's not good. No, that's not good. But, but the temptation is there to think that and to say that. It, the temptation is there, and, and you have to be careful 
careful with that because any of us can fall at any time. I've been around preachers that have said things like, oh my, the mess that Adam and Eve have made of this world, I wish I'd have been in the Garden of Eden. And I thought to myself, yeah, you wouldn't have lasted as long as they did. <laughs> yeah. You, if they lasted a half a day, you wouldn't have made it an hour. See? So think about uh, the stance that you take so that you don't trip and stumble. Now, now, First John tells us if you walk in love, you don't stumble. There's no occasion of stumbling in it. So since that kind of love covers a multitude of sins in the midst of temptations, when somebody's going through something that's very difficult, we, we have to be patient because all of us in here have temptation. When you left the devil and left the world to start serving God, you became converted and your heart was changed and you were born again. Even though you were born again, you still have the old man. That old nature is in you. The memories and everything else, that stuff is in there. Stuff that you saw and did before you became Christian, it's still here. And the Bible says now by faith we reckon ourselves dead. So in Christ, I believe that I'm crucified to the world and the world and its affections are crucified to me so that by faith they don't have a hold on me. However, the devil is smart enough to know there are certain events and, and circumstances that he can create in your life that could pull that old man off the cross and resurrect him. And this is why sometimes people get so angry they'll fly off the handle and then all kinds of stuff come out of them and say, oh my God, where was that? How, I didn't even know that was in you. Well, it's always been in there. Just needed the right kind of circumstance to bring it out. And the scripture says the cross is what brings about the, the death to those kinds of things. So verse 13, there's no temptation that is taking you but such as is common to man. Don't ever believe that any temptation you're facing or wrestling with every day is unique to you. There are millions of people facing the same battle you face every day. Mm-hmm. They put their pants on and their dress on the same way you do. And when you're behind closed doors and you're praying, say, oh, God, take this appetite away from me. Take this habit away from me. Lord, deliver me from this. Help me with this, God. This is, this is troubling me. I'm just so sad because I know it grieves you. God, please help me. Please help me. Don't think you're the only one praying that prayer. There are prayers like that going up all day long around the world. Because the tempter, the devil... He comes to you. He comes to me. He comes to all of us alike. He's been paying attention to you since you were an infant. He knows what you desire. He knows what you do not desire. He knows your preferences. He knows what you do not prefer. And always remember this. It will never be a temptation unless it is something that under ordinary circumstances you would want. Remember that. It's, it's only a temptation if it's something that you would naturally desire. And I always use this illustration because it's one of the best I can think of. With food. So you put a table out here. And if I were to ask everybody in here to name one thing you didn't like, one kind of food you didn't like, I guarantee you everybody in here has at least one thing they don't like. For some people, it's peanut butter. Somebody else? It could be something like sauerkraut. But let's say you put on the table for me, I've told you before, cottage cheese, beets. You put sauerkraut out there. You can even put some cranberry sauce 
out there. And then and then afterwards, you can say, now, Pastor, we're going to leave you in here alone with all of this food. And in one hour, we're going to come back and we're going to see whether or not you you tried to get into any of this. Well, I'm telling you, you can stay longer than an hour. You can go away for two or three weeks and come back. It'll be molded and rotted and not a fork or a spoon will have moved. However, you put stuff out there that I really enjoy. And you better not even turn around and leave because I'll be eating it before you even go. But the first table, there's nothing in me that even desires it. I've tasted some of it. Just don't have an appetite for it. And that's what happens with, with us as Christians. You, have you ever noticed that a person will become a Christian and then they'll lose the appetite for something, then their friend becomes a Christian and still have an appetite for it? So here's somebody to get saved and come out of sin and, I mean, God immediately, supernaturally removes a desire for any taste of alcohol at all. <clears throat> and then you see somebody else get saved, and then it becomes a battle with their flesh. And they're wrestling with that. And their body is craving it, and the appetite is so strong for it. Or other things, okay, or other things. Because it doesn't just have to be somebody coming out of sin. But, but as a Christian, your body, that old man can have appetites that are so strong and the cravings are so bad in you to the point that you almost, you're shaking. You can't even control your mind sometimes because you're going back and forth. And you say, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, remember verse number 13 here. This is no temptation that's taking you that's common, that, that's uncommon to man, I should say. But God is faithful. See, he's faithful. And he will not suffer you to be attempted above your able. So you have the ability to say no. When you become a Christian, God gives you the ability to say no in the midst of temptation. No one can say the devil twisted my arm and made me do it. You can't say it. You shouldn't say it. When, when, you, when your kids got in school, got in trouble in school, or when you got in trouble in school, did you ever say to your parents, well, well Jonathan did it. And then, then the parents say, okay, well, if Jonathan jumps off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff with him? Well, maybe. Well, no, that's not the appropriate answer, I can assure you. That's, that's, that's not the appropriate answer. But, but the point is, mom and dad are trying to get over to the kid that just because somebody else does it, that doesn't mean you have to make the same choice. It's a temptation. And here we have it. Here we have it right here. God is the one that's faithful to help you in the midst of the battles with these temptations when you're having cravings and your and your body is just trying to drive you on these urges. I mean, it's just growing exceedingly inside of you. Then it's God you have to depend on. Say, Father, I need grace. I need help right now. I need you to help me right now in this moment. You focus on the moment. Don't try to focus on the next time you're tempted. Focus on that moment. If you can get through that moment then you can get through the next moment. Then you can get through the next moment. But don't, 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 don't focus on, on five, five years from now. There are plenty of people who fall every day in temptation because they're fearful of the fact they already have 10 years of failure behind them. So they're afraid they'll never experience success in temptation. I've tried over and over again to stop, but I can't stop. Okay. Well, there are a lot of things we can do. If uh, and, 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 and we've seen this with preachers, if folks are watching things they shouldn't see on the computer, then you better get some blocks put on there. 
That's preservation. Better get some blocks put on there. If if they're watching stuff that they shouldn't watch on the television, they better learn to watch stuff that don't have to do with channels that have stuff on they shouldn't have on there. Yeah. If if there are books and magazines that people ought not see, they ought not have them in the house. There's always things we can do, fences and borders we can put up to protect ourselves and our minds. You you can't always kill the appetite on your own, but you can prevent certain temptations from coming to you every single day. You know, you can, you can do that. Here's, here it is again, verse 13. But with the temptation also, he will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So here we see that God provides an exit, an exit. Joseph had a woman that was chasing after him. She tried to physically assault him, seduce him. He fled from her presence. That was his way out. He ran. David was up one night when he should have been out in the midst of war, saw a woman that was down there bathing. Rather than taking off and running back in the house, he stood there and went back for a second look. And he went back for a third look. Then pretty soon he invited the girl to his palace. Yeah. Temptation. Now, it's, 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 it's easy to say that we should just say no, but you've you got to have God helping you with all of this. There's not enough willpower in the world to overcome some of this. Uh, folks that I have uh, ministered to who are going through rehabilitation uh, programs and all that kind of a thing, some places where I go preach, they'll bring folks out from Teen Challenge and... Um, uh, renewing you, these, these rehabilitation programs for people having substance abuse problems. So here I have on one night while I'm preaching, I have all the men from that group, might be 40, might be 50 of them or more. Then the next night I have all the women. Now I know just from personal experience with people that I know who've been on drugs that when their bodies are fiending or, or shaking and craving and wanting that substance, whether it's heroin, meth, crack, whatever it might be, when, when that body is craving those things, you know, and they're sweating and everything, it's not enough to just say to them, okay, now just say no to drugs. That's what the former president's wife and them said. That's not enough. Because there, there, there is something physiological that's taking place inside of them that is a problem now setting aside the fact that that, that some medical help is is likely needed there still are a lot of programs where these people like teen challenge you have to quit cold turkey they put you in a room and they basically lock you in that room except for you coming out to go eat and stuff like that so you're just in there shaking the whole time on the bed and i mean you're convulsing and then you know expurgating food and all this kind of a thing because you're just sick but but they're taught that in the midst of this verse 13 god is faithful this trouble that you're experiencing physically in your body all of this shaking and the withdrawal this is only going to last for a season but after a few hours a few days peace is going to come to your body so believe that god is with you while you're in this room now there are thousands of people that have done this that may not be how you would do it but i'm just telling you there's a there's a lot of people that have done it this way and i think that's why the the uh, return rate in teen challenge is so low because when they go through that problem, that program, and they come out, they don't usually go back. 
<clears throat> they don't usually go back. Sometimes they do, but they, they don't always, always go back. So verse 13 is very important in seeing that God makes a way of escape, but the way of escape from your temptation may not always be something that's easy for you physically. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I hope this is making a little bit of sense. But just to reiterate the answer in the midst of temptation again, it's to call on the Lord. You need his grace. You need his power. Whosoever call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Your willpower alone is not enough to help you get over certain habits and addictions and to get through every temptation. There's excessive anger. I mean, you've replaced the sheet rock 15 times. At some point, you've got to realize you don't have enough willpower. You've got to call on God. If, uh, if, it, if it's uh, what, what people deal with sometimes in physical abuse, I mean, how, how many times does a, a man or a woman have to go down to a police station and take pictures with, with black eyes and all kinds of other things before somebody realizes I need some help of another kind because what I'm doing is not working. Because you, you, you can't get a patch to put on your arm that's going to stop you from beating somebody. God's got to do work in your heart. And God's got to help people supernaturally. So in Matthew chapter 4, we, we take this temptation in a different direction. Verse number 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So here we see something interesting. It is, the, it, is, it is this Holy Spirit that leads Jesus to the place where he can be tempted by the adversary. Now, now, who would have ever thought that? That God would have a path for you and for me that would put us in the position where the adversary would have access to us. Think about that. Now, there are several scriptures in the New Testament that you need to know they're important for this because when you became a Christian, God never said to you that, that you would be so protected from evil that the devil wouldn't be able to tempt you. Here's what the scripture says. The scripture says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Well, if he's got to flee from you, he's got to be where you are. See? And the Bible says, be careful because your adversary, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. If you've got to put up some kind of resistance, he must be trying to put up some kind of fight. So he's got to be able to get to you. Yeah. And when it says in Ephesians, give no place to the devil, that means give no ground, seed, no position to the adversary in your life. That obviously means he must be trying to gain ground in your life as a Christian. So everything he's trying to do is to create temptation in your life so that he can lead you to sin. It's like the old hymn says, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Beautiful hymn. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. This was a physical wilderness in Israel. Your wilderness is anywhere you feel like you're being tempted by the adversary. Because the devil, he's not concerned about geography. As, as you'll see as you read this, the geography doesn't change his motives at all. He's going to do the same thing whether he's in the wilderness, whether he's on the pinnacle of, of a temple, or whether he's on a mountaintop. He's still going to try to tempt you to sin. It's not about geography with him. It's about you falling into temptation. And, and then it says to, to be tempted. So 
what's the example then that Jesus would have of, uh, of this for his own life? Well, if you, if you remember the story from Exodus, it said God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, but God didn't lead them a certain way, lest they saw war and fainted and decided we're not strong enough to, to fight. We need to go back to Egypt. So the Lord led them a certain way that put them between two mountains, steep hills going up, steep, steep uh, cliff sides on either side, and then a Red Sea in front of them. And when they got there, the Egyptians were coming up from behind, and it's in that place right there. They, 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 this is where they've got to make a stand, and they've got to find out whether or not they believe in God or not. Now, they know they all can't climb the mountain sides, and they all know they can't drink all that water, and they can't walk on that water. So there's only one thing to do because they couldn't go back and fight all the Egyptians. They called on God. See, They called on God. And, and here, to show that we have a Savior that is, is touched by the feeling of our infirmity, even Jesus himself, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, like we're tempted, he went into this situation knowing what the way out is. The way out is, is to hold to God's word, to believe God's word, to stand on God's word. And verse 2 says, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards, he was hungry. Well, of course, you know, a month and a half, you haven't had anything to eat, you're going to be hungry. That's one of those occasions when the adversary certainly tries to take advantage of people. Uh, many people go that, that long without food, they start hallucinating. You know, body starts acting up physically. There's also a purging factor involved with all that. You don't have a whole lot of uh, food inside of your body. But here, after this 40-day period where he was out there in the wilderness, having been led there by the Lord, this is when the devil comes. He wants to come when you're weak. He wants to come at a point where, where you don't believe you're strong enough and certainly where, where you don't believe you're inwardly strong enough. Remember, if the, if the uh, wild dingo dogs of Australia are going to chase after their prey, they're going to start running the sheep and the other animals, get them on the run, and then what they're going to do is they're going to focus on one that looks like it's limping. Then they're going to isolate it and try to cut it off from the rest of the flock. And when they do, it makes it a whole lot easier to go after the weak one rather than have to chase down a strong one, then they all pounce upon it and devour it. So the adversary does the same thing with us. He's looking for people like us to exhibit just a little bit of bitterness. It's going to cause us to be so angry at people that we'll be full of unforgiveness. Or to have a few habits and addictions that leave us so feeling condemned all the time that we don't want to witness to anybody because we don't feel worthy. All of that kind of stuff. Essentially, he's looking for people that are crippled very often by their own behavior. That's what it is, crippled by their own behavior. And, 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 and the tempter, he came to him and he said, if, if you be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, the, the reason this little point is important is because just in the preceding verses, he already heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son. He already knows that. He already knows that this is, this is the son of God. But, but this is the temptation. If you are who you say you are and who people say you are and who God claims you are, prove it. Prove it. Now, now with you, it, it'll come like this. 
Well, you say you're a Christian. You say that God answers prayer. Get yourself out of this jam. <laughs> See? Yeah, you, you say you believe in miracles and you say, you say the Lord can save anybody. How come he ain't saved your rotten kids? See? That kind of a thing. But, but don't be intimidated by that because that, that's a test and that's adversary trying to tempt you. But beside the fact that you, you and I, we can't save anybody anyway. So that, that's not within our power. All we can do is talk to God about it. But, but the thing is, Jesus had the ability to turn stone into bread. He turned water into wine. Yeah, he multiplied loaves of bread and, and, and some fishes. And then even after his resurrection, he made sure that the disciples had some food on the seashore. So Jesus, he, he can do all kinds of miracles. But what we learn from this is that Jesus will not do miracles on demand. The power of God is not going to be exploited in order just to, to show the devil that God is strong. The devil knows God is strong, and he knows that one day, ultimately, he's going to be, be uh, cast into the lake of fire. And, and Jesus did enough in casting the devil out of people. The devil knows Jesus has power. So, again, the tempter came to him. Now, this, this is an interesting thought, then. Okay, why would God lead Jesus into a wilderness where the devil could get at him? See? It, it's almost like asking the question, God made Adam and Eve. Everything he made was good. He made the Garden of Eden, wonderful place, a perfect place. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. But then God put him in a garden where the, where the serpent had access to him. See? Let the devil get to him. Well, God gives us the ability to choose, to make rational choices. And remember, the temptation is, I have to make a choice now. I choose to obey or I choose to disobey. Without temptation, it's unlikely you're going to have conviction. Without conviction, it's near impossible, nearly impossible for you to experience any, any kind of growth because God has to be able to point out something in your heart and in your life to show you what's wrong in order to turn you from that, in order to turn you to what's right. And when he turns you to something that's right, that's growth and that's grace and knowledge. So temptation comes to you just like it comes to me, just like it came to Christ, but we all handle it differently. Now, one person will be tempted and immediately they'll say, not interested, just, just, just get away. Somebody else, the same temptation to come to them, but, but they'll have, there's a part of them that may have an affection for that, and even though in the end they may say no, but it, there's still an attraction there. You see that? There's still some kind of a attraction there. Now why these attractions are there, that, that goes to, to what Paul deals with when he talks about the sin nature. There's a law of sin in each one of us. That law of sin is different in each one of us. We have we have native attractions, inbred proclivities that are different. Somebody might have a certain disposition towards this. Somebody else might have another certain predisposition towards that. I had a question one time. Somebody was saying to me, okay, well, here, here was a man uh, was in jail, I guess, then got out of jail, went to a school, abducted a girl, little girl, eight or nine years old, uh, sexually assaulted the girl, left the girl for dead. Okay. And I don't know if they caught the individual when they were telling me the story, but, but, but this is what I told them. You have to know 
that that man was driven by certain urges and passion. Okay. Now we can take the, the, the biblical line and I'll say, yes, absolutely. It's demonic. The devil drove him to do it. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I do. However, I do know that there are passions inside of people that even, even though they exist, you don't have to act on them. Okay? God gives you the ability to say no. It's the person who says to you, okay, any passion that you have, you shouldn't be taught that that passion or urge is wrong. It's when you teach people that, that you give license to iniquity, you take away the stigma from it, and so nobody ever feels bad about what they're doing until somebody tells them, well, the Bible says it's wrong. Then they confront it with it. So you, you don't have to act on every urge that, uh, th- that you have. I had somebody here not too long ago. I went and had uh, coffee with somebody in another town that worked for the city. And so uh, I accidentally walked out with the cup. And so it had city cup, you know. And I walked out with the coffee cup. And, and then I got home and realized, oh, oh my Lord, I said, Tiffany, I brought the cup home. So I text the person back, and then they said, no, no, Pastor, that, that, that's your cup. You can have that. You just hold on to that. I said, okay, okay, fine. Then I thought to myself, well, I, I should have I should have gotten in that car and drove the car home. Just to see if they would have said to me, okay, Pastor, you just go ahead. That, that, that's a city truck, you, city car. You just go ahead and hold on to that. See, I didn't because I knew it wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. But, but here's the thing. All of us in here have had urges and passions, but you can't act on every one of them that you have. Remember what we said in 1 Corinthians 10, the children of Israel had to learn that you shouldn't lust after or desire evil things? Yeah. A man was teasing Tiffany the other night and walked up to her and said, oh, I just feel like I can strangle somebody. You want to be the first one? See, she's just, te- just teasing, mess- messing with Tiff. But let's suppose you did have a, a urge to strangle somebody. You can say no. Yeah. When, when, when a kid is walking through the store with mom and dad, and, and it's a toy store or a grocery store, and mom and dad says, okay, now as we're walking up and down these aisles, I want you to make sure you keep your hands in your pocket or keep your hands in the cart. Now, the little kid going up and down the, the uh, toy store aisle or the grocery store, you know, you, you, know, you take a little, little John Ireland, you know, he just got them long arms, you know, sitting in the car. He just want to reach out and start grabbing stuff. So the temptation is there. But you know what? You reach out and grab something, and then the first thing the parents going to say, didn't I tell you not to touch anything? You know what they're saying? The ability is in you to obey me. You didn't have to touch a thing. And that's how it is with, with, with God. God gives us these commands, but with the command comes the ability to be obedient. Yield not your members as instruments of unrighteousness. So we'll stop right there, then we'll build on this in the next study. Wow, I'm telling you, that's, woo-wee, temptation. Mercy, mercy me. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're so grateful that we can look into the scripture tonight. You have shown us so many things. But Father, where we struggle in our temptations, I pray you give us strength. Make us inwardly strong to be able to resist the adversary who would like to see us fall. In Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.